0: To a Good Night for a Murder, the Victorian True Crime Podcast. My name is Kim, and seeing as the show is currently in between seasons, I thought I'd drop a little Patreon preview episode in your feed. If this is your first time listening, or maybe you don't always listen all the way to the end of the full episodes, I produce bonus content to accompany each episode that is exclusively available to the Housekeeper and Butler tiers on Patreons. But I'm pulling this bonus content out into the regular feed to give you a little taste of what's up there in Patreon. This episode was originally the bonus content for the Agapemonite episode, which was about a Victorian-era cult. This bonus content was titled The Victorian Cult of Death, and in it I cover Victorian mourning customs, clothing, and why Victorians seem so obsessed with death in the first place. (music) A Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Please take care while listening. Hello everyone, welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. This is a bonus content episode available exclusively for our Housekeeper and Butler tier patrons. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. My name is Kim, and to accompany episode six about the Agapemonites, I'm going to tell you about a different kind of cult, the Victorian cult of death. The Victorian cult of death is not so much a group one joins like the Agapemonites were, but more of a culture or lifestyle that people of the Victorian era were compelled to participate in. In a time where so much emphasis was placed on the outward appearance of one's dress, your home, the company you kept, and so on, it's not a surprise that the way Victorians mourned their dead was exceedingly public as well. What's more, expressing one's emotions or being an emotional person was not valued by Victorian society, especially in the middle and upper class circles. There were ways that ladies were supposed to act and gentlemen were supposed to act, children should be seen and not heard, and all that. So if one of your loved one dies, there was no talk therapy to sign up for or grief counseling group to join but you can follow this script of mourning rituals. So what inspired this cult or culture of mourning? First, Victorians were simply much closer to death than we are today. Today, nearly 80% of deaths occur in hospitals. We have special hospice care centers as well. In the Victorian era, though, those who were sick, injured, or dying were brought into their home to be attended by doctors, but mostly looked after by their families. Today, we also have an entire industry based on funeral services, funeral homes and directors and all that. Not in the Victorian era. All of that happened right in your house. If someone in your home is on their deathbed, you better be thinking about how you can rearrange your dining room for the funeral. And also, the mortality rate was a lot higher back then. People, especially children, died from diseases, infections, and accidents that are very treatable today. Another thing that inspired the Victorian cult of death were the royals. The royal family were their celebrities, and whatever they did, we did, or at least we tried to emulate. Queen Victoria, who reigned during that period, mourned her husband for decades until the day she died by never ceasing to wear mourning attire or be remarried and never fully returning to her royal duties. And one final thing influencing the Victorian cult of death was the business and money-making opportunities it presented. Just like today, if there's money to be made, people will find a way to capitalize on it. Department stores or mourning warehouses, as they were known, specializing in mourning dress for the entire family were common. There was mourning jewelry made from locks of hair of the deceased. There was special mourning stationery, decor for outside your home. Postmortem photography was popular. And if something that helps you mourn exists and you don't use it or participate in it, well, that's going to blow back on you. Are you really in mourning if you didn't use the mourning stationery when you could have? So hopefully that helped you understand why the Victorians seem so obsessed with death. I mean, they were confronted with death from all angles. And while it may seem excessive to us, this was their way of life. You just fell in line. And that is why it's considered a Victorian cult of death. Okay, so I'm done with my little book report now. We're going to get into some of the funeral and mourning rituals the Victorians practice. And understand when I say the Victorians, I'm mostly referring to the upper class who practiced these rituals. They were the ones with the time and means to fulfill them and the ones who most of these services were aimed at. Lower classes participated in a lot of these rituals as well, but also like a working class wife and mother who becomes widowed couldn't shutter her house and not go to work for over a year, right? She had to do what she could. So the funeral and mourning rituals began as soon as someone died. Here's what you had to do. You had to close all the curtains and stop the clocks at the time of death. Cover all of their mirrors so the spirit doesn't get confused and trapped in the house. Cover all family photos. I think this was to encourage the spirit to move on, not get distracted. No one was to visit or leave the house between the time of death and the funeral, so a wreath of laurel, yew, or boxwood tied with a black ribbon was hung on the front door. Also, the doorbell and handle were covered with crepe fabric and ribbon to discourage visitors, black if the person was older or married, and white if the person was young or unmarried. A close female friend of the family would be enlisted to help with most of the funeral preparations and also household management. She was allowed to come and go from the house to make arrangements and get anything the family might need. She would manage the meals, and she was also responsible for preparing the deceased for the funeral. She would wash and dress the body and arrange the home and the flower arrangements for the viewing. Another custom that seems very unusual to us was that of post-mortem photography. Families would often pose for photos with their deceased loved ones who were dressed and posed either seated or standing to look as if they were still alive. Now, I spent some time reading, trying to understand the thought process of why someone would want this. And what I arrived at is the simplest explanation is the most accurate. People wanted to remember their loved one as they were in life. They wanted a final memento. In fact, memorial portraits were also known as memento mori, which is a Latin phrase that translates to remember your mortality or remember you will die. So add that to the list of things to do. Call the postmortem photographer. Funerals were often attended by invitation only. The invitation must be on a simple, small square paper with a heavy black border, and they must be delivered by private messengers. And if you received an invitation to a funeral, you had to go. You find a way. The deceased would be laid out in the home, in the parlor, dining room, whatever would accommodate. Open casket was the custom, and the family would view the remains first, and then be seated with the closest relative nearest to their deceased loved one. If the home could not accommodate all the guests, the funeral will be held at a church, and in this case, the casket would remain closed. Guests would remain in the house until the family and those invited to attend the interment departed for the cemetery. The body must be carried out headfirst so they are unable to call back to others to follow them. The procession included the clergymen and usually six to eight pallbearers, followed by the hearse, then the carriage of immediate family members, and then other carriages of more distant relatives and friends. Also, mostly everyone in the immediate family, and usually other relatives, would change their style of dress to indicate they were in mourning. So, starting with deep mourning, which was traditionally reserved for a woman mourning the loss of her husband. This was expected to last about a year, and during this time, the woman could not attend any parties, social gatherings, charity functions, and so on. She had to stay home and she certainly could not court or attempt to remarry. Widows wore the deepest color of black dresses and fabrics that were stiff and dull like wool or crepe. Dresses had to be plain and were not to have any trimmings like bows or ruffles. Any necessary pins or buckles must be completely black. A six-foot veil made of two layers of crepe was also part of traditional morning dress. Fun fact about the veils, widows were putting their own health at risk just to wear these veils in order to demonstrate their grief. The fabrics were heavy and not breathable, and the dyes used in making them were often toxic and often irritated eyes, noses, throats, and lungs. Further, there was no jewelry allowed, only black boots and black gloves. While deep mourning was reserved for widows, first mourning was for all other direct relations to the deceased and also followed deep mourning for widows. It lasted about six months. You still need to wear all black. A few more fabric choices are permissible and clothes can have a touch of lace or such. Second morning is for more distant relatives or those coming out of first morning. This stage also lasts another six months. White collars, cuffs, or shawls are allowed. Also, straw bonnets are allowed as long as you wear a black ribbon or flowers on them. Widows can also wear a lighter veil. Black jewelry is allowed as well. It was commonly made of a dull material called jet, as well as jewelry made to encase a lock of hair from the deceased. Locks of hair were often kept and woven into intricate lace-like patterns to be worn in lockets and the like. During third morning or half morning, you can introduce gray, lavender, and white to different parts of the wardrobe. You can start to wear gold jewelry and also integrate other fabrics like silk and cotton. Another six months was the expectation for this period, but it could last longer. So these were the rules for women. For men, though... For a man mourning the loss of his wife, he was expected to wear a black armband for six months or so, and he could go to work and carry on with his life. Oh, and he should try and wear darker suits and hats and gloves. That's it. That's all I have for menswear. Children weren't really expected to change their dress, though girls sometimes wear black or more commonly all white dresses. So based on these customs and the mortality rate of the time, you might begin mourning one relative even before you finish mourning another. It wasn't uncommon to spend lengthy periods of time observing morning customs. That is what made it a lifestyle or a culture of death. My friends, thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Please continue to share with your friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. I hope you enjoyed that Patreon preview. If you're interested in joining or learning more about the Good Night for a Murder Patreon, you can visit a goodnightformurder.com. While you're there, you can also sign up for the monthly newsletter where I share episode roundups, reveal the upcoming month's episodes, extrovertorian society tips, and more. You can also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at a Murder. Full episodes will resume again in May. Until then, thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon.